Chapter Eight, Part Two, of Through the Brazilian Wilderness. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Through the Brazilian Wilderness by Theodore Roosevelt, Chapter Eight, The River of Doubt, Part Two. The following day was almost without rain. It was delightful to drift and paddle slowly down the beautiful tropical river. Until mid-afternoon the current was not very fast, and the broad, deep, placid stream bent and curved in every direction, although the general course was northwest. The country was flat, and more of the land was under than above water. Continually we found ourselves travelling between stretches of marshy forest, where for miles the water stood or ran among the trees. Once we passed a hillock, we saw brilliantly coloured parakeets and trogons. At last the slow current quickened, faster it went and faster, until it began to run like a mill race, and we heard the roar of rapids ahead. We pulled to the right bank, moored the canoes, and while most of the men pitched camp, two or three of them accompanied us to examine the rapids. We had made twenty kilometers. We soon found that the rapids were a serious obstacle. There were many curls, and one or two regular falls, perhaps six feet high. It would have been impossible to run them, and they stretched for nearly a mile. The carry, however, which led through woods and over rocks in a nearly straight line, was somewhat shorter. It was not an easy portage over which to carry heavy loads and drag heavy dugout canoes. At the point where the descent was steepest there were great naked flats of friable sandstone and conglomerate. Over parts of these, where there was a surface of fine sand, there was a growth of coarse grass. Other parts were bare and had been worn by the weather into fantastic shapes. One projection looked like an old-fashioned beaver hat, upside down. In this place, where the naked flats of rock showed the projection of the ledge through which the river had cut its horse, the torrent rushed down a deep, sheer-sided, and extremely narrow channel. At one point it was less than two yards across, and for quite a distance not more than five or six yards. Yet only a mile or two above the rapids, the deep, placid river, was at least a hundred yards wide. It seemed extraordinary, almost impossible, that so broad a river could in so short a space of time contract its dimensions to the width of the strangled channel through which it now poured its entire volume. This has for long been a station where the Nambiquaras at intervals built their ephemeral villages and tilled the soil with the rude and destructive cultivation of savages. There were several abandoned old fields, where the dense groves of rank fern hid the tangle of burnt and fallen logs. Nor had the Nambikaras been long absent. In one trail we found what gypsies would have called a pateran, a couple of branches arranged crosswise, eight leaves to a branch. It had some special significance, belonging to that class of signals, each with some peculiar and often complicated meaning which are commonly used by many wild peoples. The Indians had thrown a simple bridge, 
consisting of four long poles, without a handrail, across one of the narrowest parts of the rock gorge, through which the river foamed in its rapid descent. This sub-tribe of Indians was called the Navaite. We named the rapids after them, Navaite Rapids. By observation Lyra found them to be, in close approximation to, latitude 11 degrees 44 minutes south, and longitude 60 degrees 18 minutes west from Greenwich. We spent March the 3rd and 4th, and the morning of the 5th, in portaging around the rapids. The first night we camped in the forest, beside the spot where we had halted. Next morning we moved the baggage to the foot of the rapids, where we intended to launch the canoes, and pitched our tents on the open sandstone flat. It rained heavily. The little bees were in such swarms as to be a nuisance. Many small stinging bees were with them, which stank badly. We were bitten by huge horseflies, the size of bumblebees. More serious annoyance was caused by the pium and boroshuda flies during the hours of daylight, and by the polvora, the sand flies, after dark. There were a few mosquitoes. The boroshudas were the worst pests. They brought the blood at once, and left marks that last for weeks. I did my writing in headnet and gauntlets. Fortunately, we had with us several bottles of fly-dope, so named on the label, put up with the rest of our medicine, by Dr. Alexander Lambert. He had tested it in the North Woods and found it excellent. I had never before been forced to use such an ointment, and had been reluctant to take it with me, but now I was glad enough to have it, and we all of us found it exceedingly useful. I would never again go into mosquito or sandfly country without it. The effect of an application wears off after half an hour or so, and under many conditions, as when one is perspiring freely, it is of no use. But there are times when minute mosquitoes and gnats get through headnets and under mosquito bars, and when the ointments occasionally renewed may permit one to get sleep or rest, which would otherwise be impossible of attainment. The termites got into our tent on the sand flat, ate holes in Cherry's mosquito net and poncho, and were starting to work at our duffel bags when we discovered them. Packing the loads across was simple. Dragging the heavy dugouts was labor. The biggest of the two water-logged ones was the heaviest. Lyra and Kermit did the job. All the men were employed at it except the cook, and one man who was down with fever. A road was chopped through the forest, and a couple of hundred stout six-foot poles, or small logs, were cut as rollers and placed about two yards apart. With block and tackle, the seven dugouts were hoisted out of the river, up the steep banks, and up the rise of ground until the level was reached. Then the men harnessed themselves two by two on the drag rope, while one of their number pried behind with a lever, and the canoe, bumping and sliding, was twitched through the woods. Over the sandstone flats there were some ugly ledges, but on the whole the course was downhill and relatively easy. Looking at the way the work was done, at the goodwill, the endurance, and the bull-like strength of the camaradas, and at the intelligence and the unwearied efforts of their commanders, 
one could but wonder at the ignorance of those who do not realize the energy and the power that are so often possessed by and that may be so readily developed in the men of the tropics another subject of perpetual wonder is the attitude of certain men who stay at home and still more the attitude of certain men who travel under easy conditions and who belittle the achievements of the real explorers of the real adventures in the great wilderness the impostors and romancers among explorers or would-be explorers and wilderness wanderers have been unusually prominent in connection with south america although the conspicuous ones are not south americans by the way and these are fit subjects for condemnation and derision but the work of the genuine explorer and wilderness wanderer is fraught with fatigue hardship and danger many of the men of little knowledge talk gladly of portaging as if it were simple and easy a portage over rough and unknown ground is always a work of difficulty and of some risk to the canoe and in the untrodden or even in the unfrequented wilderness risk to the canoe is a serious matter this particular portage at navaita rapids was far from being unusually difficult yet it not only cost two and a half days of severe and incessant labor but it cost something in damage to the canoes one in particular the one in which i had been journeying was split in a manner which caused a serious uneasiness as to how long even after being patched it would last where the canoes were launched the bank was sheer and one of the waterlogged canoes filled and went to the bottom and there was more work in raising it we were still wholly unable to tell where we were going or what lay ahead of us round the campfire after supper we held endless discussions and hazarded all kinds of guesses on both subjects the river might bend sharply to the west and enter the jaiparana high up or low down or go north to the madeira or bend eastward and enter the tepajos or fall into the canuma and finally through one of its mouths enter the amazon direct lyra inclined to the first and colonel rondon to the second of these propositions we did not know whether we had one hundred or eight hundred kilometres to go whether the stream be fairly smooth or whether we would encounter waterfalls or rapids or even some big marsh or lake we could not tell whether or not we would meet hostile indians although no one of us ever went ten yards from camp without his rifle we had no idea how much time the trip would take we had entered a land of unknown possibilities we started downstream again early in the afternoon of march the fifth our hands and faces were swollen from the bites and stings of the insect pests at the sand flat camp and it was a pleasure once more to be in the middle of the river where they did not come in any numbers while we were in motion the current was swift but the river was so deep that there were no serious obstructions twice we went down over slight riffles which in the dry season were doubtless rapids and once we struck a spot where many whirlpools marked the presence underneath of boulders which would have been above water had not the river been so swollen by the rains the distance we covered in a day going downstream would have taken us a week if we had been going up the course wound hither and thither 
sometimes in sigmoid curves, but the general direction was east of north. As usual, it was very beautiful, and we never could tell what might appear around any curve. In the forest that rose on either hand were tall rubber trees. The surveying canoes, as usual, went first, while I shepherded the two pairs of lashed cargo canoes. I kept them always between me and the surveying canoes, ahead of me until I passed the surveying canoes, then behind me until, after an hour or so, I had chosen a place to camp. There was so much overflowed ground that it took us some little time this afternoon before we found a flat place high enough to be dry. Just before reaching camp, Cherry shot a jacu, a handsome bird, somewhat akin to, but much smaller than a turkey. After Cherry had taken its skin, its body made an excellent kanja. We saw parties of monkeys, and the false bell-birds uttered their ringing whistles in the dense timber around our tents. The giant ants, an inch and a quarter long, were rather too plentiful around this camp. One stung Kermit. It was almost like the sting of a small scorpion, and pained severely for a couple of hours. This half-day we made twelve kilometers. On the following day we made nineteen kilometers, the river twisting in every direction, but in its general course running a little west of north. Once we stopped at a bee-tree to get honey. The tree was a towering giant, of the kind called milk-tree, because a thick milky juice runs freely from any cut. Our camaradas eagerly drank the white fluid that flowed from the wounds made by their axes. I tried it. The taste was not unpleasant, but it left a sticky feeling in the mouth. The helmsman of my boat, Luis, a powerful negro, chopped into the tree, balancing himself with springy ease on a slight scaffolding. The honey was in a hollow, and had been made by medium-sized stingless bees. At the mouth of the hollow they had built a curious entrance of their own, in the shape of a spout of wax about a foot long. At the opening the walls of the spout showed the wax formation, but elsewhere it had become in color and texture, indistinguishable from the bark of the tree. The honey was delicious, sweet, and yet with a tart flavor. The comb differed much from that of our honey-bees. The honey-cells were very large, and the broad cells, which were small, were in a single instead of a double row. By this tree I came across an example of genuine concealing coloration. A huge tree-tod, the size of a bullfrog, was seated upright, not squatted flat, on a big rotten limb. It was absolutely motionless, the yellow-brown of its back and its dark sides, exactly harmonized in color with the light and dark patches on the log. The color was as concealing, here in its natural surroundings, as is the color of our common wood-frog among the dead leaves of our woods. When I stirred it, up it jumped to a small twig, catching hold with the discs of its fingertips, and balancing itself with unexpected ease for so big a creature, and then hopped to the ground, and again stood motionless. Evidently it trusted for safety to escaping observation. We saw some monkeys and fresh tapper sign, and Kermit shot a jackal for the pot. 
At about three o'clock I was in the lead, when the current began to run more quickly. We passed over one or two decided ripples, and then heard of the roar of rapids ahead, while the stream began to race. We drove the canoe into the bank, and then went down a tapper trail, which led alongside the river to reconnoiter. A quarter of a mile's walk showed us that there were big rapids, down which the canoes could not go, and we returned to the landing. All the canoes had gathered there, and Rondon, Lyra, and Kermit started downstream to explore. They returned in an hour, with the information that the rapids continued for a long distance, with falls and steep pitches of broken water, and that the portage would take several days. We made camp just above the rapids. Ants swarmed, and some of them bit savagely. Our men, in clearing away the forest for our tents, left several very tall and slender acacia palms. The bowl of this palm is as straight as an arrow, and is crowned with delicate, graceful curved fawns. We had come along the course of the river, almost exactly a hundred kilometers. It had twisted so that we were only about fifty-five kilometers north of our starting point. The rock was porphyritic. The seventh, eighth, and ninth we spent in carrying the loads, and dragging and floating the dugouts, past the series of rapids at whose head we had stopped. The first day we shifted camp a kilometer and a half to the foot of the series of rapids. This was a charming and picturesque camp. It was at the edge of the river, where there was a little shallow bay with a beach of firm sand. In the water, at the middle point of the beach, stood a group of three purity palms, their great trunks rising like columns. Round the clearing in which our tents stood were several very big trees. Two of them were rubber trees. Kermit went downstream five or six kilometers, and returned, having shot a jackal, and found that at the point which he had reached there was another rapids, almost a fall, which would necessitate our again dragging the canoes over a portage. Antonio, the parekis, shot a big monkey. Of this I was glad, because portaging is hard work, and the men appreciated the meat. So far Cherry had collected sixty birds on the Duvida, all of them new to the collection, and some probably new to science. We saw the fresh sign of Paca, Agouti, and the small peccary, and Kermit with the dogs rose a tapir, which crossed the river right through the rapids, but no one got a shot at it. Except at one or perhaps two points, a very big dugout, lightly loaded, could probably run all these rapids. But even in such a canoe it would be silly to make the attempt on an exploring expedition, for the loss of a canoe or of its contents means disaster, and moreover, such a canoe could not be taken, for it would be impossible to drag it over the portages, on the occasions when the portages became inevitable. Our canoes would not have lived half a minute in the wild water. On the second day, the canoes and loads were brought down to the foot of the first rapids. Lyra cleared the path and laid the logs for rollers, while Kermit dragged the good dogots up the bank from the water with block and tackle with strain of rope and muscle. Then they joined forces, 
as over the uneven ground it need the united strength of all their men to get the heavy dogots along. Meanwhile the colonel with one attendant measured the distance, and then went on a long hunt, but saw no game. I strolled down beside the river for a couple of miles, but also saw nothing. In the dense tropical forest of the Amazonian basin, hunting is very difficult, especially for men who are trying to pass through the country as rapidly as possible. On such a trip as ours, getting game is largely a matter of chance. On the following day, Lyra and Kermit brought down the canoes and loads, with hard labor, to the little beach by the three palms where our tents were pitched. Many pakovas grew round about. The men used their immense leaves, some of which were twelve feet long and two and a half feet broad, to roof the flimsy shelters under which they hung their hammocks. I went into the woods, but in the tangle of vegetation it would have been a mere hazard had I seen any big animal. Generally the woods were silent and empty. Now and then little troops of birds of many kinds passed, wood-heavers, ant-thrushes, tanagers, flycatchers, as in the spring and fall similar troops of warblers, chickadees, and nuthatches pass through our northern woods. On the rocks and on the great trees of the river grew beautiful white and lilac orchards, the sobralia, of sweet and delicate fragrance. For the moment my own book seemed a trifle heavy, and perhaps I would have found the day tedious, if Kermit had not lent me the Oxford book of French verse, Ostach de Champ, Joachim de Bellay, Ronsard, the delightful La Fontaine, the delightful but appalling Villon, Victor Hugo's guitar, Madame Desbordis, Valmore's lines on the little girl and her pillow, as dear little verses about a child, as ever were written. These and many others comforted me much, as I read them in headnet and gauntlets, sitting on a log by an unknown river in the Amazonian forest. End of chapter 8, part 2